Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our collective hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. On this July 4th holiday weekend, I invite you to consider with me the real meaning of what we celebrate this weekend. And if I were to invite you to encapsulate in one word what it is we're actually celebrating, what would that one word be? Freedom. And it's exactly that freedom that I want to reflect with you for a few minutes this morning. Freedom has deep theological roots. And if we go back to the beginning of our country, the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths. Now the problem is, with even from our very founding, that those truths didn't extend to everyone. We know that many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were slave owners. We know that women didn't have the right to vote, not until 1920. We know that African Americans had no voting rights, no legal rights, and for political purposes were considered three-fifths of a white person. We know that from our very founding that we are flawed human beings. In his book, God in the Crisis of Freedom, Richard Baucom goes to the theological roots that we're going to talk about this morning. He talks about freedom as it was first expressed in many ways with the Israelites and their exodus out of Egypt. They were freed from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Freed in order to praise their God and serve one another. You see, it was always understood that freedom was freedom from in order to praise, worship, serve, love God, love your neighbor. And it's not always easy to do that. And I don't need to tell you that we're struggling as a country to do that right now. But one of the things that first attracted me to St. John's decades ago was your commitment to love God and love your neighbor and the myriad ways in which you do that. As we look at the scripture lesson appointed for today from 2 Kings, and thank you, Christina, for adding four verses. I know all of you were looking at your leaflets and wondering what she was doing. Stay with me. So in that lesson you heard 
which is such a great story for those of us who live in the nation's capital, which has populated them more than our fair share of self-important people with power, prestige, position, who step on whomever and whatever for fame and fortune. We encounter the great commander, Naaman, who by all accounts had power, position, fame, fortune. Seemingly, he was on top of the world, right? He had a problem that he couldn't fix. Didn't matter about his power, didn't matter about his position, didn't matter about his fame or his fortune. He had a skin disease that was visible to everyone who encountered him. And you have to know that a man in that position would have gone to his equivalent of Johns Hopkins, the Mayo Clinic, MD Anderson, and everywhere trying to get rid of that problem. But he couldn't do it. And can't we in some way relate? Don't all of us, if we're honest, have some woundedness that we carry, that we long to have healed, to be made whole? So I'm inviting a little empathy for Naaman. So to underscore that God works in mysterious ways and through the most unlikely people, you know he tried everything, and he had to be desperate because what finally moves him to the one thing that's going to heal him? The commander listens and is convinced to the captive, a young girl who was taken captive from Israel and now serves his wife. And she says to Naaman's wife, if only my Lord will go to my country, there's a prophet who can heal him. How ludicrous does that sound? Some unnamed prophet in an enemy country. But Naaman is just so desperate that he listens. He goes to the king and he said, you know, I want to go to our enemy country over here and etc. And, and the king says, sure, and here's a letter of introduction. So Naaman loads up all this loot, which is about 900 pounds of precious metals, all these garments, and this whole entourage. Now, it's not like you and I packing up the car to go to Baltimore to Johns Hopkins. This was a 200-mile trek. This was a huge undertaking. And what kind of a gamble to some unnamed prophet 200 miles away, but Naaman goes, gets to the king of Israel. He tells his whole story. The king of Israel thinks it's a trap, tears his clothes, and the now unnamed prophet, Elisha, shows up, tells the king, don't stress, I got this. Send him to me. So Naaman loads up all the medals, all the garments, all the people, and off he goes to Elisha. Now, we don't even have to guess what Naaman was imagining would happen, because it didn't happen. He comes, arrives at Elisha's doorstep. Elisha doesn't even open the door and step outside. He sends a messenger to the great commander, Naaman, and says, 
go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be made clean. Naaman is furious. He's imagining there's going to be some great dramatic moment with the great prophet Elijah coming out, saying, sort of, saying some sort of magic words and hocus pocus with the hands to make the skin disease go away. And he almost misses his healing, except God who works in mysterious ways with the most unlikely people save the day. These unnamed servants of Naaman basically manage up. They appeal to his ego and they say, oh great Naaman, if you were asked to do something really difficult, wouldn't you do it? Yes. Well, how much simpler? Just go to the Jordan, give it a try, seven times. So Naaman goes and has to park his ego, his self-importance and his pride on the bank of the Jordan. And he goes in the river and he's healed, which is a great miracle story. But the great miracle is what comes next, which is why Christina read a few more verses. Yes, he was healed, skin deep, but he was healed of something he didn't even know he needed. As the story continues, Naaman realizes that there is one true God, and he commits himself to worshiping from that moment forward the one true God. He humbles himself, opens his heart up enough to receive all that God intended for him. That's the great miracle. That's the true freedom in the story. He goes back to Elisha, offers him all the loot that he's hauled 200 miles plus at this point. And Elisha said, no, keep it. And Naaman asked for two things. One, a couple mule loads of dirt that he can haul back to Damascus so that when he worships his new one true God, he's standing on holy ground. And he asks for a pardon for the times when he has to go with his king into the pagan temple of Rimmon, that he'll be pardoned. Elisha responds, go in peace. You see, Elisha offered to him what God offers to each one of us, grace. It's freely given. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't power your way to it. It is God's gift to you and to me. That, my friends, is true freedom. Freedom from bondage. Freedom in order to love God and love your neighbor with all that you are and all that you have. So over the course of this weekend, as we reflect on our country, do the things that you at St. John's have done for so many years. Reach out to those who are hurting. Offer grace freely given and love them into the kingdom, just as Jesus asked the 70 to do, to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. America, America, 
God, shed thy grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Amen. Amen.